Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Scripture reading this morning will be Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 25, the the chapter in its entirety. If you are using one of the Blue Pew Bibles, you will find Romans 4, 1, beginning on page 941. This year we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Uh, We we celebrate the beginning of the Reformation on the the anniversary of Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the castle uh, church door in Wittenberg because it was that event in God's providence that that sparked the revolution, that that, that lit the fuse, that, that, uh, that caused the gospel to be recovered not only in Germany but throughout Europe and eventually even to the ends of the earth. And so we each year take time to to celebrate and to remember the Reformation, but we have to acknowledge that for many today, the language of of the Reformation is not clear. Why why we celebrate this, why this is a cause for Thanksgiving is not always clear to everyone. And so this year on Reformation Sunday, I began a a series of sermons on the five pillars of Reformed theology, the the so-called five solas of the Reformation. We, we speak of sola scriptura, scripture alone. We speak of sola gratia, grace alone. We speak of sola fide, faith alone. As well as solus Christus, Christ alone. And then finally, soli deo, gloria, to the glory of God alone. These are the pillars of what it means to be reformed. These are the, the, the foundations of reformed theology. And this uh, year, we are taking the time to see each of these pillars in Paul's letter to the Romans that we might know and understand that the pillars of Reformed theology are simply the pillars of the biblical gospel. Why we celebrate the Reformation is not because we like this or that theologian, but rather we celebrate the Reformation because it was in God's providence that through the Reformation, His gospel The gospel of His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's it's through the Reformation that that gospel was recovered and again spread abroad. And we still are reaping the fruits of that today. Though, of course, we stand in need of that Reformation to be ongoing. As we seek to proclaim this gospel, as we seek to, to teach this gospel, as we seek to believe this gospel, not only here in our own congregation, but even to the ends of the earth. So to this point in our study, we have looked at sola scriptura, and we have looked at sola gratia. This morning, we come to sola fide, and we will see it here in Romans chapter 4. So let's read it together. Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is the very Word of God. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness." Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or is it also for the uncircumcised? 
We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised." For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring." Not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, But for ours also, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespass and raised for our justification. That is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for his blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you humbly this morning, asking that the same spirit who inspired Paul to write these words would now be at work here this morning, that he would cause the preaching of his word to be clear and faithful, and that he would prepare our hearts to receive it and to bring forth its fruit in our lives, all to the praise of your glory. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said last Sunday, our focus was on the doctrine of sola gratia, or grace alone. And as we considered that doctrine, we saw that that sola gratia means that salvation is the gift of God's grace. The gift of God's grace is not the ability or the strength that you need to do the good works necessary to establish your own righteousness with God. I'm convinced that that's what some people understand grace to mean. They think that grace is God's helping hand. Grace is is God giving them the strength they need to be good enough. Grace is, is God empowering them to do the good works that they must do if they would inherit eternal life. But that is not what Paul means when he speaks of salvation by grace. When he speaks of salvation by grace, he means that salvation itself is the gift of God's grace. It is salvation itself that that God gives to us. That That is what we mean when we speak of 
grace alone, or, or salvation by grace alone. This morning, our focus is going to be on our reception of that gift. We say that that salvation is a gift. That's sola gratia. We say that it is a gift bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That is grace. That is Christ alone. That is uh, solus Christus. That will we'll be our focus next Sunday. But this morning, the question before us is this. How do we receive this gift that was bought and paid for by Jesus Christ? How do we become beneficiaries of Christ's work? What is our role? What is it that, that we must do? And it is this question that the doctrine of sola fide answers. When we speak of faith alone, we mean that it is faith alone that receives the gift of God's grace purchased by the blood of Christ. Our role is simply to believe. Our role is simply to receive the gift that God Offers Not to work for it, not to attempt to earn it, but simply to receive it as the gift of our Heavenly Father. And we actually saw this last week in our study of, of Romans chapter 3. Remember, in, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, after spending a, a few chapters establishing the fact that, that no human being can be justified in God's sight by works of the law because no human being can actually do the law. No human being can actually keep the law. They, they cannot be righteous enough to earn God's favor. They cannot establish their own righteousness with God by their deeds because their deeds are sinful. And Paul shows this for for several chapters at the beginning of his letter to the Romans. But having established this fact, having established that that none is righteous, that that no one seeks for God, that, that no one can be justified by works of the law, Paul finally announces the gospel in verse 21, writing these words, saying, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. As I said last Sunday, that is the doctrine of of grace alone in a nutshell. In that one sentence, Paul tells us that the righteousness that we need has now been revealed, and it is a righteousness that is utterly and completely separated from the law. It is not a righteousness that is through the law by grace. But rather, it is a righteousness that is apart from the law. It is a righteousness that is separated from the law. We do not get to righteousness through the law with God's help, but rather we receive the righteousness we need as His gift. But how do we receive it? How do we receive this gift? It's the question that Paul answers in verse 22. Notice what he says. He he describes this righteousness, this righteousness that is apart from the law. He describes this righteousness as a righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There it is. That's that's our doctrine. That's sola fide. That is the doctrine of of faith alone. That this grace, this this gift of salvation, this, this gift of righteousness, this gift of right standing before God, this gift is through faith in Jesus Christ. And it is for all who believe Showing that, that it is faith alone that receives this gift. That, that faith is not only necessary, but it is sufficient. It is the sufficient cause of receiving the gift that God has for us in Christ. Salvation, righteousness is received by faith. 
We see it again in in verse 25. Look what what Paul writes there in chapter 3. Uh, he speaks of, of Christ as the one whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Pro- propitiation means a, a sacrifice that, that turns away the wrath of God. It, it, it speaks of Christ's death, his, his blood shed upon the cross. And notice what he says. He says this propitiation, this sacrifice of atonement, it is received by faith, Paul says again. And then he says it again in in verse 26, right at the end of of verse 26. He says that that this was to show God's righteousness in the present time, that he might be both just and the justifier of whom? Of the one who has faith in Jesus. Who is it that is justified? It is the one who has faith in Jesus. That statement is is startling, especially when you compare it to what Paul said only a chapter earlier in in verse 13 of chapter 2. He said, it is not the hearers of the law who are justified in God's sight, but it is the doers of the law who will be righteous. If you would be justified through the law, you must do the law. You must keep the law perfectly. If you're going to be justified through the law, it is only by doing the law that you can be declared righteous. But now... In the gospel of God concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, there is a righteousness revealed that is through faith in Jesus Christ, that is for all who believe, that is received by faith, so that God is the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Maybe we get the clearest statement of it all in in verse 28. Look again at, at what Paul writes. He says that boasting is excluded. Why? By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by a law of faith. Then here it comes. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Clearly then, you you see that as Paul expounds the doctrine of grace alone in chapter 3, he cannot but help at the same time expound the doctrine of faith. Alone, the, the two are inseparably bound together. That they, they imply one another. If salvation is a gift, if it is a gift that is that is given by God's grace, then it can only be received by faith. Otherwise, it would not be a gift. And if it is received by faith, then it must be a gift. It, it can't be wages earned because it's received apart from works. It's it's received by faith alone. Grace alone implies. Faith alone, and faith alone implies grace alone. That the two are are bound together. That if we are saved by grace, then we are saved through faith and through faith alone. But the question that that Paul comes to in chapter 4 is this. We understand what Paul is saying. We we understand that, that, that he is proclaiming that salvation is by grace, and that because it is by grace, it is received by faith. But as Paul's opponents hear him pronouncing this gospel, the question that they are asking is, is that really the gospel? Is that really what God said? Is that really the way it works? Can we really believe that God will receive sinners? Can we really believe that God would would receive ungodly people simply because they believe? That's not what I heard when I was a kid. That's not the gospel that I remember. And that is exactly the question that Paul comes to in chapter 4. And Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that this is not something new. This is not something he made up. But that this is the gospel of God. The only gospel that there has ever been from 
the beginning. He actually made this claim at the very beginning of his letter. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 1. You'll remember that Paul introduced himself as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. Paul says, you you should listen to me. You should receive my words because I speak the very words of God. I am am an apostle set apart by Christ himself to, to speak with Christ's own authority. And the message that he has given me is this gospel that I proclaim. But notice how he describes it. He describes it as the gospel of God, which he, that is, which God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that this gospel that he is proclaiming is the gospel which God has proclaimed from the beginning. The gospel that God himself proclaimed in the Old Testament through his prophets. And this claim is so important that he repeats it in verse 21 of chapter 3. Look again what he says. He says, now a righteousness of God has been manifest that is apart from the law. That's the gospel. That this righteousness is separate from the law. It is apart from works of the law. It is not a righteousness that we establish. But Paul wants to make it clear that this is not contrary to the law and the prophets. In fact, it was spoken of there. Look at what he says. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So here it is. This gospel that I'm proclaiming, this gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, this is the gospel of God. This is the gospel that he spoke through his prophets. This is the the gospel that that has been testified to from the very beginning. This is the only gospel that there has ever been. And that's what Paul's opponents are questioning. That's, that's what Paul's opponents are saying. It doesn't, doesn't sound like what I heard. That doesn't sound like what I was taught in the synagogue. That doesn't, that doesn't sound like what my, my parents told me. I can't believe that God would, would justify anyone apart from works of the law. You can imagine the same objection being raised against Luther and Calvin in the day of the Reformation. You can imagine people coming to him and saying, well, that doesn't sound like the gospel I heard. That doesn't sound like what I was taught in church when I was a little kid. So why should we believe you? Why should we believe that this gospel that you are proclaiming is the true gospel? As I prepared for this sermon this past Sunday, I have to tell you, I was struck by the profundity of that question. It is a profound question. Why should we believe that this is the true gospel? I stand before you this morning to tell you that you may be reconciled to the one true and living God through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I stand before you to tell you that that your sins may be forgiven and that you may receive an inheritance of eternal life by God's grace through faith alone. And it is of unconceivable or inconceivable significance whether or not that is true. It is is the most weighty question that you will ever wrestle with. Is this really true? Is this really the gospel of God? You see, we don't get to relate to God on our own terms. We don't get to make up how we're going to be reconciled to Him. We can be reconciled to the God who is there only through the means that He provides, only as He says. Is this really what God has said? It is a question of profound weight. 
In the foreword to a book by the title of Faith Alone, the book's actually written by Thomas Schreiner, but the foreword is written by John Piper. And in that foreword, John Piper says this, Surely we must conclude that these questions are of infinite importance. Infinite importance. And he goes on to say, I use the word infinite carefully. Because the consequences of answering these questions incorrectly have infinite significance. Eternal life is an infinite thing, and thus the loss of it is an infinite thing. Therefore, any human concern that has to do only with this world, no matter how global, no matter how painful, no matter how enduring, if it has only to do with this world, it compares to the importance of saving faith as a thimble compares to the ocean. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, listen, there, there, there are all kinds of questions that you're wrestling with this morning. There are all, all kinds of issues that, that, that uh, clamor for your attention. But there is no question, there is, there is no issue more important than this. There is no question more important than this. Is, is this the true gospel? Is this the gospel of God? Is this the way that God has said we may approach Him? And it is only as we feel the weight of that question that we will be prepared to hear what Paul says in Romans chapter 4. Because that is the question that Paul is answering. He said, let me show you that this is truly the gospel. The one and only gospel. The gospel that God has proclaimed from the very beginning. The gospel that God has proclaimed from Genesis 3.15 all the way to the end. That you can be reconciled to me by grace through faith alone. So how does Paul answer that question? Well, we see it here in Romans chapter 4. Look with me again at what Paul writes. In order to answer the objection of his opponents, Paul points them to Abraham. He he asks the question, what shall we say was gained? Or maybe a better translation might be, what shall we say was found by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? What was Abraham's experience? Now why Abraham? Why is Paul pointing us back to Abraham? It's not just because he he found a convenient proof text. But rather, he he tells us that Abraham is our forefather. He is our forefather according to the flesh. But he's not only a forefather, he is the forefather. He is the one with whom the covenant was made. The blessings of the covenant that we seek, the, the blessings of the covenant that we receive in Jesus Christ is the Abrahamic covenant. It's the covenant made with Abraham. And therefore... What was true for Abraham will be true for those who who follow after him. For the terms of the covenant can't be changed. And so what was true of Abraham? What was Abraham's experience? That's the question because Paul says it explicitly in verse 23. He says, what was true of Abraham will be true of us. The words it was counted to him were not written for him alone, but for us also. If faith was counted to him for righteousness, it will also be counted to us. But if faith was not counted to him then we have no hope of receiving righteousness by faith alone. So what is it that Abraham found? What was Abraham's experience? Paul tells us Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. He says if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But it's not true. If he had been justified by works, then he would have had something to boast about. But he has nothing to boast about because he wasn't justified by works, but rather, what does the Scripture say? Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He's, he's quoting Genesis 15 there. 
He's telling us that, that the Scriptures clearly say that Abraham was justified by faith. Abraham believed God, and having believed God, he was counted as righteous. And so here is the foundation. Here, here is the experience of our forefather, of the forefather. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It's, it's there in the text, but not only is it explicitly stated in Genesis 15, it's, it's also implied by the fact that Abraham was justified before he was circumcised. We, we see this in, in verses 9 through 11. Paul asks the question, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? And Paul answers his question. He says, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before. And that's just simply history there. Paul is simply going back to the Old Testament and he's looking at the chapters. He says, listen, it's, it's plain that Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. In Genesis 15, God says that that He declares Abraham righteous because he believes. And it is not until chapter 17 that He gives him the sign of circumcision. Circumcision was given as a seal of the righteousness that Abraham already had by faith. Circumcision, as as, as that which Abraham did, did not make him righteous. Rather, it was a seal of the righteousness that God had already given to him, that God had already counted to him. And so circumcision is a seal of the promise that righteousness is by faith. That's the point that Paul is making. And so for the Jews of, of Paul's day, he says, listen, circumcision, which, which you regard sort of as your, your token of, of obedience to the law, the sign that you submit to the law. He says, it is not circumcision or it is not the obedience that circumcision points to that justifies you. But rather, those flow out of justification. Those follow justification. You are justified. You are justified by Faith and circumcision merely seals what has already been counted. But what does this mean? What does it mean to say that Abraham was justified? What is this justification that Paul is talking about? Look again, we we see our answer in verses 6 through 8. Look at 7 and 8 first. Paul quotes from David's Psalms, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And so to be justified is to be forgiven. It is to, it is to have your guilt removed. The psalmist speaks of our guilt being removed as far as the east is from the west. Paul speaks of the the record of guilt that stood against us being nailed to the cross. To be justified is to be forgiven. It means that, that your lawless deeds will not be counted against you. It means you will not be treated as your sins deserve. This is the blessing of, of justification. But there's more to it than just this. There's also a, a positive righteousness. It's not quite as clear in this text as, as it is elsewhere, but, but it's, it's here. It's, it's implied in the language of verse 6. Because notice what he says. David speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works of the law. It's not just that we are counted as not guilty. It's not just that we are declared innocent and, and given a fresh start, but we are declared righteous. We are counted righteous. Yes, our our sins are forgiven. Our our guilt is removed. 
But more than that, we are positively declared to be righteous. The righteousness of God is counted as ours. We are declared to have fulfilled the requirements of the law. Remember, it's not the hearers, but the doers of the law. And therefore, to be justified is to be declared as having done the law, not in ourselves, but through our union with Christ. That Christ's obedience is counted as our obedience. This is what it means to be justified. If you are justified in Christ, it means that you are declared righteous in the sight of God. Not just forgiven, but positively righteous. And that means you are declared as having a right to all the blessings of the covenant. I think that's a helpful way to think about justification. If you are justified, you have a right to all the blessings of the covenant. You didn't earn them, but they are yours by right because you are in Christ and His righteousness is counted as your righteousness. Therefore, you have a right to eternal life. You have a right to an inheritance in the coming kingdom of God. You have a right to a seat at the the table of your Lord. All of the blessings are yours by right in Christ. That is what you have received. And Paul says, that is what you have received by faith. By faith alone. By faith alone, all of this is yours. By by faith alone, you are justified. By faith alone, you are declared righteous. So what does that mean? What does it mean to receive all this by, by faith alone? Well, again, Paul anticipates the question and he answers it for us in verses 4 and 5. Notice the contrast that he draws here. What does he, what does he mean when he says that these things are by faith alone? He tells us that to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. If you work, you are owed your paycheck. You know, when your boss gives you your paycheck for the hours that you've worked, you don't, you don't consider that a gift. You consider that your due, that's what he owed you. He would be in the wrong not to give it. But not so for the one who believes. Notice what Paul says in verse 5, to the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so what is this receiving by faith? To receive by faith means to not work, to not earn, but rather to receive as an unearned gift of grace. The contrast is clear. If you work for it, if you earn it, then it's not received by faith. The contrast is between faith and and works. Faith is to to receive that which is unearned. To to work is to merit. It is to be owed by obligation. It is to have something coming to you that is due to you. Something that is owed to you. Paul says, we have nothing owed to us but God's wrath. We have not earned anything but His condemnation. But by faith, by faith, we receive all these blessings. And what is this faith? Well, notice how Paul defines it in verse 5. He refers to the one who trusts Him who justifies the ungodly. What is faith? What is this faith that that receives the the blessings of justification? What is this this faith that, that unites us to Christ and makes us heirs of the coming kingdom? It is faith 
in God. It is trusting Him who justifies the ungodly. You are the ungodly. You are the sinners justly deserving of God's wrath. That's that's who we are by nature. We are by nature objects of His wrath. We are by nature under condemnation. We are by nature deserving of His punishment. We are the ungodly. And faith is believing that God can take the ungodly and can declare them to be righteous. Not because of what they have done, but because of what has been done for them by the Son. That is faith. To trust in Him who justifies the ungodly through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Our confession defines it as receiving and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Receiving means receiving the teaching, receiving the the apostolic testimony, receiving that which is proclaimed to be true, believing it. That's where where faith begins. It, It begins with believing the testimony of Scripture, believing that these things are so. But it moves beyond that. It, It moves beyond simply believing these things to be true and actually entrusting yourself to them. Of actually resting in what Christ has done for your own salvation. You believe not only that God can, but that He will for you. This is faith. To trust that He has justified you in Jesus Christ by grace, through faith alone. And when you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive the righteousness of God. You are declared to be just in His sight. And you are given a right to all the blessings of the covenant that were promised to Abraham and to his posterity. This is what it means to be justified by faith. This is what it means to receive salvation by faith alone. Now obviously, such faith will produce obedience. Paul talks about that even here in this text. He he speaks of walking in the footsteps of Faith, that's why James says that faith without works is is dead. Faith and works cannot be separated. The Reformers said that to say that justification is by faith alone does not mean that the faith that justifies is alone. It can never be alone in the life of the believer. It will always bring forth fruit. It will always express itself in love. And we talk about that a lot around here. But make no mistake that while faith produces obedience, faith and obedience must be kept distinct. They cannot be confused. You stand before God as righteous not because of what you have done, but because of what has been done for you by another. You stand before God as righteous because you have received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone. And in Him alone, by faith alone, You now are a child of the King and an heir of the kingdom. And this is what you must believe. What's the application of a text like this? What do we do do with a text like this? Well, well, in some sense we could say that the, the applications are infinite. All obedience flows out of this faith. But at its most basic, the application is simply this. Believe. Believe this gospel. 
Believe that it is true. Believe the doctrine of faith alone. Believe that all the benefits of Christ are yours by faith alone. Believe that by faith and by faith alone you are justified. Believe that by faith alone you this morning have peace with God. You whose conscience is troubled. You who know the things that you have done better than anyone else in this room. You who this morning feel like a fraud. Understand that if you have believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have received and rested upon Him alone for your salvation, you are forgiven and you are declared righteous in the sight of God. You are a child of the King. By faith and by faith alone. Not because your obedience merits it. It doesn't. It is no mystery to God. It is, it, is, it is no surprise to Him that you are still a sinner. He knows the good work in you is not yet complete. He knows the truth about you more deeply and more truly than you know it yourself. And He has declared you, the ungodly, to be righteous through the blood of His Son. That is the Gospel And it is that gospel that sets you free to walk in the footsteps of faith. You are no longer seeking to earn. You are no longer seeking to establish your own righteousness. You are are no longer working for for wages. You are a child of the King. You are an heir of the kingdom. And you are now free to seek to learn to, to more and more live as a child of God. You are are free to to learn more and more what it means to put into practice who you are in Christ. So my encouragement to you this morning is simply this. That if you have received and rested upon Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. You are justified. You are an heir. And there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from God's love in Christ Jesus. All the blessings of the covenant are yours. Believe them. Receive them. And now walk in the footsteps of faith. Not not seeking to earn. Not seeking to to maintain. not, Not seeking to hold on to. But simply seeking to enjoy all that is yours in Christ. For your salvation was bought and paid for by another. And it was received simply as a gift. He is the God who justifies the ungodly. And He does so by faith and by faith alone. And because that is true, that is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We rejoice in the beauty of this Gospel. Father, for for so many reasons we struggle to believe it. Sometimes it is our pride. Sometimes it is our, our fear. For so many reasons, Father, we, we struggle to believe. And so we come before You like the father of the, of the young child, asking, Father, we believe, help our unbelief. Father, give us the grace to believe these promises. Give us the grace to, to rest in what You have promised. Give us the faith of Abraham who did not waver, but, but stood firm in his faith, believing that You were able to do all that You would promise and that You would indeed do it. Father, give us that faith this morning that we might walk in the footsteps of that faith, that we might bring forth the fruit of that faith, and that we might serve Your kingdom and Your people until You come again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.